Good morning, good morning, good morning. It is Friday at Bayshore Family Camp, which means we're all a little more relaxed. We kind of show up when we want. <laughs> we move at a slower pace. We start Bible study a few minutes late. <laughs> I'm sure a few more are going to kind of just drizzle on in, you know, because can you drizzle in? I don't think you can drizzle in. You can drizzle in? Let's drizzle. Let's drizzle in. <laughs> don't mention drizzle because every woman loves the drizzle on their hair, right? It helps the hairstyle. Yes. <laughs> Oh, do you have any questions or comments over the week and any of the studies? Is there anything that needs clarified? Is there any comment you'd like to make? Did the Lord teach you something new? Were you challenged in any way? Anybody want to share something? I know it's probably not going to end up on the tape, so when they edit this, maybe they'll edit this out. That was a little clue. <laughs> So, anybody? Yes. Of the what? Got it. Where do you find the other audios? Um, on the Bayshore Camp website. So, I know when you go into the tabernacle and the, the things are scrolling, if you're there before the worship time, the singing time begins, there's a screen that actually shows exactly where you find it, but I think you'll find it under, um, so bayshorecamp.org, and then there's a drop-down, maybe somebody could check this on their phone and see really quick if, you, if somebody wants to do this. Do you have iTunes? I don't have iTunes, so if you have iTunes, you can find it there. If you don't have iTunes, you go to the Bayshore Camp website, and uh, I think it's under Summer. You click under summer, and on the drop-down, I believe there's a word that says, yeah, there's a word, though, that's for the recording. I'll find it, and I'll look and see. But I know that I saw it scrolling last night on a screen that showed it. So it's, it's embedded in the website somewhere. <laughs> and maybe we could even mo ask them to consider moving a, even a link right to that front page for easier to find. But that's where you will find them, okay? Yeah, any other questions or comments or something anybody wants to share? I, yes. You know, it was her husband. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> that was awesome. No, when he said you can't unscramble eggs, I turned around to him and I was like... <gasps> <laughs> I thought he came up with that. <laughs> no, that was good. <laughs> Anybody else? When we teach um, little kids or if you, Sunday school lesson or junior church or at camp or um, do you need the whole chair? Okay, perfect. Um, the, the whole idea that when, God, when you're in a relationship with God, you're so connected to him that it's just, it's kind of, it's, it is impossible. There's no kind of about it. It's impossible to separate from that. So we'll spread peanut butter on bread and then ask kids to try to remove the peanut butter from the bread. 
like separate that. And you just, it, it's impossible. You know, you mix salt and pepper together and, uh, and try to now separate the pepper from the salt or, you know, those things. But unscrambling eggs is, that's good. Because that's that process that's in the middle of that, you know. How do you un Yeah, and then they show up in the genealogy of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've said before, I, I really enjoy teaching and speaking at women's events, and the women in the genealogy of Jesus are just, I mean, that'll, that'll preach all day long for an Advent message, to, or, you know, series as well, because you have Rahab, who, what do we know about Rahab? He was a prostitute, yeah. And then there's Tamar, we saw her yesterday, so, so far, we're batting over here on the bad and ugly, right? Named in the genealogy of the Christ. And then we have um, uh, Ruth. Yeah, and Ruth is not even uh, an Israelite. You know, she doesn't have the right blood, right? <laughs> Just, God did not make a mistake when he named them. And then the whole story in the midst of Ruth and Naomi and coming back, that's, that's a beautiful story. Then you have Bathsheba. Now, she's not named because I believe in Matthew 1, she's referred to as Uriah's wife because she's the mother of Solomon, who is from David to Solomon. He, that's the begat, and on you go. And so I love, though, do you see how God just did that? Even in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, he throws a rearview mirror in there, doesn't he? Uriah's wife. Because what do we know about Uriah. David murdered him. David had him murdered. That's right. He came up with the entire scheme and plot because he didn't want to get caught, right? Because Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, was pregnant with David's son. <laughs> yes. Now, if you, if you even go to the beginning of that story, I, I think it's second. Samuel chapter maybe 11-ish. It's on the left page, left column right there. And what it says is, at the time when kings go off to war, and then it goes into the whole story about David, man, do not blow by that part of scripture because that sets the stage for the entire story of Bathsheba. David was not where he was supposed to be. And then the story. Got to grab those pieces in there. And then the fifth woman named in the genealogy of Jesus? Mary. Jesus' mother. Yeah. Oh, powerful stories and so much mess in the midst. And all the grace. There you go. There you go. Good point. Did you hear what she said? Yeah. Good point. So we have another story filled with grace, <laughs> filled with grace, but also filled with some bad stuff. But Jesus Christ, 
is all about redeeming the bad. God set his plan in motion before the earth was even formed or created, the cross was on God's mind. Always. Because we think of things in terms of a timeline, but God thinks of things in terms of eternity. God doesn't, he doesn't, I mean, he just knows things. And so that's just, my brain starts to want to explode in my head at how big and vast some of I mean, all of God's plans are. It just, it's incredible to me, incredible. So um, let's pray, and uh, then we're going to dig into our story here. Father, once again, we're grateful that we're here to learn from you. We're grateful that you've called each one of us here. We are not here by accident. We are here by pure design, and that you've wooed us here. You've called us here. We're grateful for your grace. We're grateful for the grace that uh, is referred to as prevenient grace, the grace that goes before, that you are always at work in our lives before we're even aware of it. And God, we're just thankful for your justifying grace, the grace that allows us to come into a relationship with you. And Lord, we're thankful for your sanctifying grace, which is the grace, God, that allows us to live holy, that allows us to so that we're able to love others and that we're able to forgive and that we're able to bear the fruit of your spirit and that we're able to do the gifts that, uh, that you have embedded into each one of us and that we're to act on those things. God, we're just grateful for who you are. And Lord, there's your glorifying grace too. We're in this room and we're breathing, so we haven't experienced that one yet. But God, the day will come when we're done breathing air here and we're just all about you and worshiping you and, and celebrating being in glory and being in heaven. And we're done with this flesh and it's all about the spirit. And God, I'm grateful that we have that to look forward to. But God, would we come right back to our current realities? And would you please help us, Lord, to live the lives that you intend for us to live? And so part of that, Lord, is from learning through your word. So we're going to trust you in this moment right now. And I'm going to ask, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing unto you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. So Exodus 6.6 6 says that I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Who's I? God. God says that's just a little snippet in that one verse. It's a long verse. But God says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I love that concept, his outstretched arm. And it just kind of pulls you right on in. You know, he just kind of brings you right to his side. We're going to be in Genesis uh, 37 and 39, chapter 37 and chapter 39, because chapter 38 we were in yesterday, smushed in the middle of Joseph's story. And Joseph is our... Um, main character, if I can use that word, today, um, and Potiphar's wife. We're going to look at what happened when their lives intersected. Some bad stuff. You ever uh, used the term or heard the term, life is the pits? Life's the pits? Yeah. There's a lot of pits in life, right? So what about like a fruit pit? 
What fruits have pits? A peach pit? Cherry pit? Plum pit? Nectarine? Apricot? Apple? Apple? What? Oh, a mango. <laughs> I heard something else. I was like, what? Yes, a mango? Avocado? How many of you eat those pits? Have you ever bit into one? Tastes good? Mmm. How is it that in the middle of something so good is something so bad? Did you know that in cherry, peach, plum, did you know that in those pits there is a high contamination of cyanide? Wow. Something so destructive. Right in the center, and yet what came first, the good or the bad? The seed, right? The pit. Isn't that interesting? What about a snake pit? Good or bad? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In historical Europe, snake pits were, uh, were used because that's where convicts were cast. Mm. Yeah. What about an armpit? What do you know about armpits? They, they're stinky. What else? They, they're hairy. Exactly. When my boys wear tank tops, and they, my men boys, my boy, and they want to come up and hug me, I'm like, can you? No. No. Because then that is right there. No. Are they sweaty? Isn't that lovely? And yet, it's connected to something so beautiful. Hmm. What about a ball pit? You know those fun, multicolored ball pits that kids, little kids just love to play in? Do you know that McDonald's has banned them? Do you know why? Because, they're, because of germs, and they're filled with static electricity where lice attaches to. Did you know that? So those fun, don't you want to go and buy a ball pit for your grandchild now? Right? Oh, my word. So, and they can, yes. I know, they look like so much fun. Little multicolored plastic balls, and you fill up in a big old whatever. You can put them in a pool. You can put them in a, like a big old Rubbermaid bin, and kids just hours and hours of contamination. <laughs> right? Something so good can bring something so bad. Hmm. Joseph was in the pits a couple of times. He was. And we need to take a look at his story. But I think what you have found in this Bible study is we can't just start in his pit because then we don't have the full story. We need to back up and we need to gain some understanding and some clarification. So first of all, who is Joseph? We already talked about this, but let's just re remind ourselves. Joseph is the son of Jacob and Joseph's mother is Rachel and Joseph is what number son to Jacob? 11. Yes, 11. And Joseph had a younger brother because there were 12 sons. Do you know who that was? Yes, Benjamin. 
And Benjamin was, also, was whose son? Yes. All right, so Joseph is the 11th born son to Jacob. And what else did we find out about Jacob? Jacob learned from his mother and father how to have favorites. And so therefore, Joseph is the favored son out of 12 boys. And there were girls too, but this one. So what did Jacob do for Joseph to even slap every sibling in the face every time they looked at him? What, they, what did he do? He made him a coat, and a coat of many colors. The technicolor dream coat, right? That was Joseph's. He had a coat. Ugh. So how did the older brothers feel about this? Look in chapter 37, verse 4. What does it say? When his brothers saw that their father, so when Joseph's brothers saw that Jacob, the father, loved Joseph more than any of the others, what'd they do? They hated him and and could not say a kind word about him. So from this verse alone, do we, can we tell how they felt? Well, in case you didn't get it, let's move on. So look at verse 8. Joseph's come to them, said, I had a dream. And then his brothers say, what? Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? Oh, and you know this entire story? That's a verse you got to go back to when you get to the end of Joseph's story. That's a verse that connects right back. Okay, and then it says, and they did what? Keep going. They hated him. All, so, I mean, really, how do you hate somebody more? How do you, isn't hate bad enough? And yet, they hated him even more. Go to verse 11. Now he's had another dream, and the brothers respond. And then the brothers say what? His brothers were jealous of him. Hatred moved to jealousy. So then we see here, so we're going to read through the rest of this, not the rest of the story. I'll stop at some point, but let's pick this up. So verse 12, now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. So here's what happens with a favorite son. Where are all the brothers? Working. Where's Joseph? Mm-hmm. Home. Now, we don't know. Maybe he's keeping the books. Maybe he's... But do you think that daddy is protecting his favorite son? Mm. So we can surmise because it doesn't say this. But Joseph... I mean, Jacob could have stopped this. He's the father here. He's... He's in charge, and he could have taken some responsibility here. But we're not here to talk about Jacob. We're here to talk about Joseph. So he says, I'm going to send you to them. Joseph says, very well. Literally, that means here am I. Here am I. I will do it. So he says to Joseph, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. And he sent the, him off from the valley of Hebron. 
And when Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and said, what are you looking for? And he replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? Well, they've moved on from here. I heard him say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers, and he found them near Dothan. Oh, look at the first word in verse 18. Man, there's another one. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, what did they do? Plotted to kill him. So you have hatred that turned to more hatred, that turned to jealousy, that turns to a murder plot. All in one family. And these are people in covenant relationship with God. God has called this amazing family. Hmm. Yes. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him in one of the cisterns. And then we'll say that a ferocious animal devoured him. And then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Wow. So not only do they come up with a plot to murder, they also come up with a cover-up. Right? Got to cover it up. So Reuben heard, hears this, and he tries to rescue him from their hands. Oh, look at how he rescues them. Well, let's not take his life. Don't shed blood. Throw him into the cistern in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Oh, thank you very much, Reuben. So we're still going to do something bad to him. It's just not going to be as bad. How bad is bad? How bad? It's kind of like question with hate. They hated him, and then they hated him even more. So they want to do bad to him, so now they're going to up the level of bad, like decrease the level of bad. So therefore, do you see what humanity does? That's why God is a God of absolutes. It either is or it isn't. So it's either bad or it's not. It's either good or it's not. There's none of this in-between stuff. I think we said on Monday, what does God have to say about people who are lukewarm? In, in the book of Revelation, what does he say? Do you know what God says? He wants you either hot or cold. He would rather have you cold than in the middle, riding the fence. Because what does he say he'll do if you're riding the fence? I will vomit you out of my mouth. And we talked about that. Who wants to be that? I mean, Jonah came out of the belly of a big fish. How? <laughs> In the midst of all the vomit. Stinky, nasty vomit. Spewed him right out. Yeah. So, ugh. So Reuben says this to rescue him from them and to take him back to his father. So he's still playing, like he's got Joseph on his mind, but he's not willing to stand up to his brothers and say, enough is enough, stop it. Joseph, run, run, run as fast and as hard as you can. They want to kill you. He didn't do that, did he? No. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, that richly ornamented robe that he was wearing. Now see, Joseph should have taken that robe off before he went out there. Yeah. Everybody knows what's going on here. And they took him and they threw him into the cistern. Now, the cistern was, was empty. There was no water in it. And as they sat down, 
to eat their meal, they looked up and wouldn't you know, a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead are on their way. Camels are loaded with spices and balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. And Judah says to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Why don't we sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him? Do you think this is Judah's plan right here? Or do you think the hand of God is somehow involved in the middle of this? Mm-hmm. You don't go from a murderous plan and then settle down that fast while you're eating a meal. Like, they're just going through, they're acting as if this is just a regular old plan and a regular old day. And uh, he, after all, he is our brother. He is our own flesh and blood. And the brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who then took him to Egypt. Oh, man, what a bad set of circumstances in one family, in one day. <sighs> That's some ugly stuff. Any of you ever faced ugly? You can raise your hands or you can just keep them down. I'm not asking the question for you to... But got any, got any bad stuff in your family? Have you come from bad stuff? Because what's really bad, right? Because what you think is bad, I might say, well, that's not so bad. But if it affects you, it's bad. Nobody else gets to determine whether your bad is bad or it's just not so good. That's, a, that's you. If it affects you, then it's bad. How, though, how do we live in the midst of the bad and still allow redemption to come. So how does the good stuff around that nasty pit in the middle of fruit, how does that good stuff, how does the fruit come? Mm. So the first redeem plan here that we have is to trust the almighty hand of God. Trust his outstretched arm. Trust him. Psalm 139.8 says this. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. And where is the depths? In the King James Version, it says, it says depths also. It says hell. If I make my bed. So what is that? It's really, it's the underworld. It's the grave. It's hell. It's also the pits. Literally, the word means pits. It refers to a place of no return. You ever feel like you're in a place of no return? Well, just because you feel it doesn't make it true. Because this scripture right here says that God's there. His outstretched arm can scoop down and get you. Joseph's brothers didn't want him to return, so they sent him to a place of no return, or so they thought. Life is the pits for Joseph, and he's been pulled out of the pit, but he's still in the pits. Why? Because now he's chained up to the back of some cavern. He doesn't have his robe on, so he's probably not fully clothed at all with anything. Probably chained up, shackled to the back of this thing, either being drugged. They didn't treat him well. They didn't treat him well. 
Psalm 139.10 continues, after we see that God, God is in the midst of our pits, your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. And in that scripture, when you, when you dig down to what it really means, God's guiding hand um, is referred to as like his strength and his power. That's what it means. God's strength and his power will guide you. His right hand is kind of like being by his side and it's going the right way. That's the figurative meaning for that. And then it says, will hold me fast. Literally, it means that he'll grasp you, he'll catch you, he'll take possession of you, he'll seize you. It means that you can settle into his hand. It means that you're enclosed in his hand. It means that his hand is an overlay for you. It means you are fastened to his hand. All those definitions from one word to hold fast. When things are bad, trust the hand of God. When things are bad, Remember Psalm 139, 8 and 10. Trust God's plan. How big is God's hand? Well, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12 says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? I'm a real pictorial person. Like, I like to vision things. I learn by looking. And so um, I picture God scooping up the, the waters in his hand. So if God were to scoop up the Atlantic, Aegean, Indian, Pacific, and Arctic oceans, along with the Adriatic, Aegean, Arabian, excuse me, Black, Caspian, Mediterranean, and the Red Seas, and then you add over all the over a million lakes that are on Earth. Oh, and then there's the rivers, right? And there's streams. And then you have the ice caps because they'll turn into water at some point, and you put all of that into God's hands. You would have, if you put it all into a water ball, let's just say we're going to take all that water and scoop it up into a water ball, like a sphere, then the diameter of that water ball would be 860 miles long. That's a big ball. That's a lot. That would be the distance from... Uh, Salt Lake City, Utah to Topeka, Kansas is 860 miles. That's how big the water ball would be, and your God can hold it in the hollow of his hand. Can he handle your bad? If you believe that to be true, then yes, he can. <laughs> yeah, that's the same God that can hold you fast. And while he's holding you fast, He's holding you fast. And while he's holding you and you fast, he's holding you and you fast. And while he's holding you and you and you and you and you and you. He's holding all his children fast. That's a big God. Man, that gets me excited. Like I can hardly stand it when I when I'm reminded of just the vastness and the bigness and the most strength and the powerfulness of God's hand, his hand. Oh, that just, it, my mind wants to explode again. That's the same God that's holding Joseph right now. Joseph, hated by his brothers, sold to a band of merchants after he was thrown into a pit 
Oh, that's the same God. Wow. Do you know that throughout all of Joseph's story, he, there is no record where he ever questioned God. Through his entire story, the whole bad and ugly in the middle of a good family, he doesn't question God. <laughs> Did Joseph desire to suffer well through the bad? I remember a few years ago, well, it was back in 2009 when I was diagnosed with cancer, there was a, um, a pastor at a large church in Texas. His name is Matt Chandler. I don't know if you know who he is, but uh, good, good man, good, good preacher, good speaker, good man. He had cancer at the exact same time. He was diagnosed with brain cancer, and it was very bad. Young man. I think even now he's just in his young 40s, if that. He might even still be in his late 30s. And, um, and I remember following his blog because we shared something in common, and he said, I just want to suffer well. I want to suffer well. I've never forgotten that. See, we focus so much on just the suffering but Joseph is suffering, and when we read his story, we see he suffered well. When you know that you're being held by God's right hand, and you trust that and you know that, it, that's what holds you and keeps you when the bad is so bad that you don't know where up even is. You can't see the light. You have no clue what's coming around the bend. You, you are in such despair. Do you still trust the 860-mile-long diameter of the water ball that can be held in God's hand? You're sitting there, too. There's room for you next to that. Hmm. Waiting. How many of you like to wait? I mean, in a waiting room, right? The waiting room. Oh, I just, I, I, you've probably heard this a million times, but it makes me chuckle every time. I think it's so interesting that we're called patients while in a waiting room. I'm, isn't that just funny? <laughs> it's funny to me. I think God just planned that totally on purpose. Yeah, oh, how you wait matters. How you wait matters. We talked about this the other day about there's a bunch of scriptures, mostly in the Psalms, on how we wait. Wait patiently, wait on the Lord, wait till the, the day is done. Just wait, wait, wait on the Lord, wait, wait, wait. I think that we get so focused um, in prayer, which is good. We get focused in our minds. We get focused on our passion. We get focused in emotions. We get fo focused in our conversations on when and how God is going to redeem the bad. But what would happen if we just waited better? What would happen if we waited well? Because suffering well means we have to wait well. And so in our prayers, how do we show that we're waiting well? Are we constantly begging God to do something? That's okay. But are we also asking him to give us what we need or to give our friends what they need in the wait? Because what if it just doesn't happen? Hmm. Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford penned one of the greatest hymns known to man. Right? We sang it the other night. It is well with my soul. 
This man knew how to suffer well. He lost much in his life. You're, you're probably familiar with the story, but he, uh, he went through the Chicago fires way back in the late 1800s or whatever that was, early, yeah? Yeah, the Chicago fires. He lost much. He was a very wealthy businessman. And then it was two years later when him and his, and his wife and four daughters wanted to go um, to Europe and to hear a preacher and he was detained by business, so he sent his wife and daughters on ahead in the shipwreck, and the daughters are all lost, and the wife is saved, and she sends that two-word message, telegram back, saved, alone. And so then Horatio got on a ship, and he came across, and when he got to the spot in the ocean where the ship had gone down and his daughters had died, that's when the words, it is well with my soul, were birthed. <sighs> that's suffering well. Did you also know, though, that three years later, that, well, within that next year, him and his wife had a son, and that three years later, that son died of scarlet fever? Do you know that that's a part of that story, too? <sighs> the same man who penned it as well with my soul, it was well then. And then another bad loss in his life. Do you think he was still singing it as well? With my soul. Do you know the story of the hymn, um, uh, uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing? You know, the, the prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, that hymn? So the man who wrote that hymn um, was a preacher, and he wrote that hymn when life was good. And then some bad things came along in his life, and he walked away, walked away from the Lord, walked away from everything that he knew. And one day, he jumped in a stagecoach, and he was about at the bottom of his barrel. He was in the bottom of his pit. And he got in this little stagecoach, and there's this little old woman sitting in there, and she had her little book open, and she's humming the tune, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And he just turned and stared at her. She said, oh, do you know that hymn? And he said, know it. I wrote it. God used the very words that he spoke into that man's heart to bring him back into the fold. <sighs> That's a good God. That's a good God in the midst of bad. <laughs> when you are faced with bad, are you focused on what the are you focused only on when the redemption comes? Because if you're missing out on what there is to learn in the waiting, then you're going to miss so many lessons that holy God has for you. Because getting out of the bad is not the best part. It's what you learn and what you suffer well through in the midst of it that matters the most because it's what sets you up to move on. It's that tucking in tighter. It's growing in our Lord. Joseph waited well. For years, Joseph suffered. He was not where he was supposed to be. Another man, not where he was supposed to be. He should have never been in Egypt. He should have been with Jacob. He should be tending his sheep with his brothers. Instead, years later, so the merchants land in Egypt, and then they sell Joseph into slavery, and Potiphar ends up buying Joseph, and he works his way up through Potiphar's household 
and becomes a trusted servant of Potiphar. So we have to skip to um, Genesis 39, 7 here. So this Egyptian official, one of the top officials for Pharaoh, he's the captain of the guard, that's who Potiphar is, um, has bought Joseph from the Ishmaelites. And look at verse 2 before we move any forward, though. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. Man, another one of those scriptures that we have to settle on before we read the entire story. The Lord was with Joseph. But look in 39.7 what happens. After a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. So the captain's wife takes notice of Joseph. Some pretty dreadful, unpleasant, and shocking things can happen when we're not, when we're where we're not supposed to be. He's not supposed to be there, except it wasn't his doing, was it? A lot of us have been in places in life where we're not supposed to be, and we took ourselves there. Sometimes we're not where we're supposed to be, and it's the fault of somebody else. There's a lot in the midst of that. This is that hand of God, grace of God thing that goes on. But the Lord was with Joseph. Though Joseph was never intended to live in Egypt, as a slave, the Lord was with Joseph. Though Joseph was abandoned by his brothers, he's never abandoned by God. Though he was neglected by his family, by the people that took him across the land, by the merchants, God never neglected him. Tucking in tight to Jesus is never based on how or where you are. It's trusting in the presence of Jesus in your current reality. That's tucking in tight. has nothing to do with your circumstances and everything to do with who you're tucked in tight to. His brothers were reckless, but God reckoned Joseph's steps. Contrary to abandon and neglect, Jehovah was present and Jehovah provided. You see, trusting God's presence in the midst of our bad is necessary. Sandwiched in between the two bad events, Jesus, uh, excuse me, Joseph being sold and Potiphar's wife, we have the Lord was with Joseph. Why do bad things happen to good people? Man, that is a question. I just got a message from somebody while we've been here at camp. Can you just help me through this question? It's a woman rooted in the word. She's rooted in the Lord, and she's got people asking her, and she says, I know how to answer that for myself, but I need to, how do I answer that for other people? So let's have a conversation next week. Because it's different for everybody. How you answer that question, why do bad things happen to good people? How you answer that question determines on what their relationship with God is. If they don't have a relationship with God, then the question needs to wait a moment because there's something, you can answer that question all day long, but it's not going to help get them into heaven. 
but showing them who God is, taking some of the things that we see about, well, let me tell you a little bit about God. Maybe you don't know about God. Because, see, sometimes we get so focused on what the bad is that we forget or we never knew about who God is. So tell them something about God. Ask them questions. Most people have heard about Noah's Ark. Most people have heard about Jonah. Most people know about David and Goliath. They don't have to ever pick up their Bibles, but somehow some of those stories are just known. And talk about them. How is it that a, a teenaged boy, little, with a slingshot and a stone, could take down a nine-foot-tall giant? Like, how do you think that's possible? And then they'll say, well, you know, the trajectory of the shot was probably perfect, and the stone hit him exactly where it needed to. It's a stone. It's a pebble. Like, it was a stone. It wasn't a rock. It was a stone. Smooth. There's, like, no even edge that could nick and cut. And then, so, okay, great. So then that I'm sure that that is absolutely possible. There is some statistical thing that could make that happen. But do you know how the giant fell over? See, if the giant is hit with something coming at him this way, what direction is he going to fall? Backwards. But how did Goliath fall? Ask him, how does that happen? Just ask good questions and let it just hang there. You don't have to convince them. That's not your job. You just have to teach. Open it up. That's all. Just kind of offer it. The convincing is up to whom? The Holy Spirit. Absolutely. The Lord was with Joseph. Joseph knew this, and he trusted this, and he counted on this before the Potiphar wife situation is about to erupt. Joseph knew this. That is the definition for me of tucked in tight, is you are so tucked in tight in the good times that when the bad times come, you're so glued and tucked in, right? How do you unscramble that? How do you unscramble tucked in tight? You shouldn't be able to. You should be so intertwined with who God is and who the Holy Spirit is and how good our God is that nothing can take you down. It can affect you. It can hurt you. It could harm you. But it can't remove you from being so close to God. And that is the most important thing. Joseph trusted this before a manipulative woman attempted to weasel her way and get his attention. When we first adopted Jalen and Sukanya, one of the first things we taught Sukanya, and it was so cute, she's like, you know, six years old, and we're teaching her that Harbin women do not manipulate or negotiate. We do not. I have seen way too many women manipulate and negotiate. And by golly, we're not living like that. So she couldn't say the word, so manipulate is what she said. You can go up to her. You could ask her today, what are the two things that Harbin women aren't, aren't, aren't supposed to do? And she better answer because <laughs> she knows the answer. She'll say manipulation, and she'll go, manipulate, negotiate. <laughs> Even just this morning, you know, she came up to me. I told her something, and she went and did something else. And I looked at her. I said, I, I don't, like, that's negotiation. We're not doing that. Don't negotiate. So she had to go and do it right and come back. This woman here. Potiphar's wife, mm, she's a manipulator. She's a negotiator. Now, some of us always say, yeah, well, you know, she's just, she's spoiled rotten. Yes, she is. She gets whatever she wants, apparently. Those are just 
explanations. Do you know there's a difference between explanation and justification? You can explain all day long why something's bad in your life, but you can never justify that you respond to it horribly when you're in a relationship with God. You can explain it all day long, and, that, that, and nobody can take away your explanation. They are true and they are factual. But justify poor behavior? You can't. Because God tells us how to behave and how to operate and how to face bad things. So look here on how Joseph found favor in Potiphar's eyes. He, God allowed um, um, Joseph to prosper. That's the word I was looking for. He allowed him to prosper, and he lived in the house of this Egyptian master. And when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, you see, even Potiphar couldn't understand. He couldn't, he, nobody could explain how Joseph could be so successful and prosperous that the Lord was getting the credit even from his master. That was in verse 3. And Joseph found favor in Potiphar's eyes and became his attendant. And Potiphar put him in charge of his entire household. He entrusted to his care everything that he owned. And from the time that he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. You see, God's goodness, when you are operating and suffering well, others will even reap the benefits of you suffering well. The blessing of the Lord was on everything that Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. Now, Joseph, he is well-built and handsome. He is well-built and handsome. And after a while... His master's wife took notice of Joseph. Another man's wife takes what she was never supposed to have. And some of you are thinking the come to bed with me thing. And that's not what I'm talking about. She took notice. She took notice. She took a long look at another well-built and handsome man. Now, I've been out on some girl nights with some ladies from church, not the church I'm in right now, and I'm sure not your churches. I've been out on some girls' nights. I watch how ladies act. I watch how ladies take notice of another man. And I'm telling you right now, Christian ladies, it's not good. It's not good. I have a well-built and handsome man is my husband. And I know when another woman is taking a look, taking notice, as opposed to noticed. It's okay to notice handsome. It's okay to notice beauty. It's okay to notice well-built. It's another thing to take notice. You're not allowed. It's not yours to have. You'll have to deal with me if you do. <laughs> Everybody should feel like that about your spouses. 
Oh, so what happens when bad goes to worse? What happens? You stand firm when bad gets worse. You stand firm. Potiphar's wife took notice. And I'm telling you, other people were there and they knew. You see how she's looking at him? Somebody should have said something. Somebody should have done something. When you notice something that's going on that isn't good and it isn't right, what do you do about it? Do you know that it's okay to confront? See, that's where people say, well, we're told we're not supposed to judge. Oh, my word, can I punch you, please? Judging is not not confronting. Judging is not confrontation. They're two totally different things. If there's wrong going on in one of your friends, Christian friends, lives, would you love them enough to confront them? Confront them well. Don't scream at them. Don't yell at them. And for Pete's sake, do not text them. Have a face-to-face -face with them. Take them out to dinner. That's where Kevin and I talk about money in a restaurant. We'll kill each other if we're in private. We, we have, we have, that's a big contentious thing for us. So we go in public or a jacuzzi, either one. <laughs> you people are hard. That's, that's funny. Like, that's funny, and we're married. It's okay. <laughs> it's good. Anyway, <laughs> when you, would you love your friends enough? Would you love them enough? Because you're called to do it. It's okay. Somebody should have confronted somebody in the middle of all this nasty going on. Stand firm, though. We're talking about Joseph. So when you're the one in the midst of the bad, stand firm when bad goes worse. You see, she took notice. I said it's one thing to take notice. The King James Version said his master's wife cast her eyes. So imagine the cartoon, right? You know the cartoon. Like when the, exactly, <laughs> when the cute little skunk notices the other cute little skunk and, you know, like Pepe Le Pew or the cats or whatever. What happens to their eyes? They're, boom, on this. Yes, that's casting your eyes. That's what she did. Her eyeballs came out of her head on slinkies and just, boom, out there and then back they came. Yes. She took notice. She, casting, here's what this word means in its original text. She allowed herself to be swept away. That means that she could have done something about it. Well, I just couldn't help myself. I mean, he's so good looking, and I, you know, I just, I couldn't help. you got to be kidding me. Close your eyes. She allowed herself to be swept away by what she saw. Clearly, this wasn't her first look. This was not her first look. No. <laughs> She's looked at Joseph a lot. And then, where does the look take her? You see, there's always a step behind. Always a step behind. So when you've made that poor choice, when you have entered to sin, what was the step before? When could it have been stopped? Those are the important things. And now she's demanding him. You see, her look caused her to get took by desire. She had the need to have, the need to be needed. That's what overtook this woman. And now she's demanding that he have sex with her. 
That's apparently, I believe, proof that she's not used to hearing the word no. Mm. Unreasonable and irrational behavior get her what she wants and when she wants it. Oh man, that is a spoiled, bratty, snotty, entitled woman right there. Character traits fostered from never hearing the word no. This woman says jump and everybody responds, how high? In this instant, she has taken her entitled, arrogant, give me what I want lifestyle and she has stooped to a new low. She's demanding the trusted by her husband in everything, well-built and handsome man to have sex with her. So far, through all the bad, Joseph has not allowed the plotting antics of others to injure his integrity. Did you know nobody is in charge of your integrity? Oh, they can mess with your reputation, but nobody can mess with your integrity. That's yours. It's all on you. Your integrity, it's yours. Your reputation, somebody can try to harm it. Somebody can try. They can spread all kinds of stuff about you, whether it's true or not. That's all reputation is what people see on the outside. Integrity is what come, what's on the inside and how it comes out. I love integrity. It's kind of like a strong will, too. I love that. You see, in verse 8, what does it say about Joseph? This is a good but, by the way. <laughs> it's a good but. But he refused. He refused. This is powerful proof that Joseph is willing to stand up and to stand firm when bad gets worse. And then he goes and gives solid reasoning. He said, with me in charge, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. He's trying to be kind and saying, that includes you, lady. I'm in charge of you. Everything. And I will not ruin that. Potiphar trusts Joseph. Potiphar withheld nothing from him. Everything was in his care. Everything. Integrity. You know what word is in the middle of integrity? Grit. Grit. <laughs> integrity has grit. That means to stand determined. Joseph was predetermined, and ready with a response. I mean, it doesn't say he went, uh, 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 uh. his eyes were not on a slinky shot. She was casting her eyes. He was standing firm. He was determined because he was predetermined that this is how he was going to live his life, integrity. When somebody asks me what I love about my husband, it's the first thing I say I love is integrity. The man you see in the pulpit is the man I live with. And it's true. He's not a perfect man, but he's a good man. And he is the same. He approaches things the same wherever. If he's leading in the home, he's leading in a meeting, he's leading, leading in church, leading out a Bayshore camp, where that's who Kevin Harbin is. And I love that about my man. I love that. You can look on that all day long. Don't look at him. Just look at that. He has integrity. He has grit. This man here, Joseph, he doesn't stammer. He doesn't sputter while this beautiful woman is making demands on him. What does it also mean to stand firm or to have grit? It means to stand with fortitude. Fortitude, that's a good word. 
fortitude. It's the emotional strength to stand and face the bad. Some of you are wondering, man, I'm just, I'm a wreck. I'm an emotional wreck. Then you need fortitude. It's part of grit. It's part of integrity. The emotional strength doesn't mean you can't cry. That's not what that means. It doesn't mean that you can't get mad. That's not what that means. It means what direction do your tears go when you're crying? You know, I, that, I love that about the story about Hannah in, um, in 1 Samuel, and she's married to this man in Elkanah, and he has another wife, and there's, see, there's a mess right there. Right there. We wonder why the story's so bad, because you've got a man with two women. Wow. Kevin can't handle me. How in the world? I mean, he can, but I make it very difficult for him at times. That's what I mean by that. How in the world could he handle another? He can't. And so uh, Hannah, though, she was just a mess, crying and crying, and she was just crying. And then a beautiful thing happens. It says, then she pours out her heart to the Lord. Oh, did you know that your tears can fall up? When your tears are falling up and going in that direction, then crying's okay. But if they're just going down and that's all they're doing is watering the ground or making your shirt a mess, running all your makeup, then those aren't good tears. Shed tears that, that are filled with fortitude and emotional strength. And then there's another one, to stand tenacious. Tenacious. Ooh, another big word. I love that. Tenacious. Tenacity holds fast. Tenacity is persistent. Tenacity doesn't back down. Tenacity is firmly and stubbornly adhered to a purpose. It's firmly and stubbornly adhered to a purpose. That's Joseph. That's integrity. That's grit. You see, Potiphar's wife has her will set. She wants Joseph in her bed and she wants him there now. But the grit that Joseph shows in this temptation is tenacious. He is unwilling to yield to her demands. You see, he can't be controlled and he can't be persuaded by her. There's something more powerful and steadfast than grit that guides integrity, though. It's called righteousness. For a follower of Jesus, righteousness, right living, Look at what Joseph says in the middle of verse 9. How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? You see, he shows integrity by saying, I can't do this against my master. And then he shows righteousness by saying, I can't do that because it's against my master. God. Standing on righteousness. When bad wants to draw you in, stand on righteousness. Psalm 23, 3. In the, in the middle of the Lord is my shepherd. You lead me in paths of righteousness. He leads you to the path of righteousness. You don't even have to find that path yourself. He's got it for you. Joseph prospers in this moment because righteousness is his path. Integrity guides him to live right. Anybody can have integrity. You don't have to be in a relationship with Jesus to have integrity. But you are in a relationship with Jesus in order to live righteous. 
Stepping off the path of righteousness was more disconcerting to Joseph than being manipulated by a wild woman. In uh, Exodus chapter 1, we find um, two women. They're hardly known, but they're two midwives, and their names are Shifra and Puah. Their names mean splendor and beauty. And they're the two midwives that the Pharaoh has said you're going to kill every boy that's born to an Israelite woman. Okay? And they stand up to the Pharaoh. They say, we won't do it. Saying no to the Pharaoh, death. If you said no to the Pharaoh, you were killed on the spot. And these two women stood and said, we won't do it. Why? Because righteousness was their path. And they said, we can't do that. We won't. You know, those babies just come so fast before we even get there. They're, they're spitting out babies faster than we can even get there. They're over on the two stones because that's how they gave birth. They sat on two stones and the baby came out. And those, that, the maternity ward was like this in the Israelite camp. <laughs> we get there, and I believe it's true. I don't believe that's a lie. I believe that was true. And we can't do that. I mean, those babies are just coming. Hmm. Righteousness. Another redeemed plan? Be prepared. Because sometimes bad is relentless. You ever, how many of you have ever said, I wish it would just stop? Why does she keep going? Why does that keep happening? Why is he so in my face? Relentless. Look at her. Verse 10, and though she spoke to Joseph day after day. day a- Okay, if there is one thing that gets on my last nerve, it is my child in church tapping on my shoulder. Don't be tapping on my shoulder, okay? Tap, 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 bam. I mean, I just don't tap my shoulder. That's relentless, just constantly, oh, yeah. Hmm. She kept demanding Joseph day in and day out. Come to bed with me. 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 All day, every day, and he's still doing his job, doing exactly what he was supposed to do. And then what does it say? He kept what? Refusing her. He refused to go to bed with her. He even refused to be with her. I'm not even going to be in the same room as you. Oh, relentless every single day. How do you keep standing firm when the bad in your life doesn't relent? Do you yield to it or do you yield to God? Make the decision now because relentless is around the corner. You make the decision now. How are you going to stand firm in the middle when bad becomes worse? Bad is relentless. It's all-consuming. And if you're not consumed by Jesus, bad will definitely consume you. Look what happens here. Verse 11, one day, one day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. And she caught him by the cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. One day, one day might not be far away for you, One day, Joseph's one day came, his bad got worse, but Joseph was prepared. 
Oh, he had no clue what the next bad's going to be, but he knew that he wouldn't fall to it. So one day he's attending to his duties, and one day Potiphar's wife cleared the house of all of her other ser servants, and one day she caught his cloak, and one day she made her same demand, only she was holding on, and one day Joseph was caught, but not caught off guard. He was so tucked in tight to his Lord, to God's ways, to God's right hand, that Joseph escaped her hand and he ran right out of his cloak. He ran right out of his cloak. Now that's a whole other story. If you were to preach on this part of running out of his cloak with the whole technicolored cloak, like that connection there, that's a good, that's a good sermon right there. I heard it once said, he was more concerned with his character than he was his cloak. I mean, it proves here how far Joseph has even come because he was willing to wear that beautiful multicolored cloak out into the fields to face his brothers. And now he's willing to run out of a cloak to escape an awful, horrible situation. Joseph's bad got worse. It got relentless. It changed, but he didn't. His circumstances changed. They got worse, but he didn't. He was not ruled by the bad. He was a man surrendered to God. He chose to be tucked in tight to God rather than stuck in despair. Oh, but what happened with this righteous man? What happened with him? He ends up in prison because he's falsely accused because Potiphar, dummy, believed his wife because she told some nasty story. But He's in prison. So the Lord was with Joseph and showed him kindness and granted him favor. And you can read all about that in the rest of 39 and into 40 and into 41. You see, bad things do not control God. They can't control God. God does not freak out when you're in the pits. Um, Matt and Lee said that yesterday, I believe. God knows what he's doing. He didn't freak out. He doesn't sit on his throne in a tizzy. Oh, my word, she's facing this awful situation. What are we going to do? God doesn't do that. God knew that Joseph's brothers wanted him dead. He knew that he was going to be sold into slavery. He knew that Joseph was going to land in Potiphar's house. He knew that Potiphar's wife was going to be on him. And he knew, he knew, he knew, he knew that Joseph would land in prison again. He knew. Look at Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Joseph is speaking to his brothers because they come back into relationship. Joseph says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Our son Jalen, we named him Jalen Joseph because of this verse right now. Others intended harm in your life, son. God's going to intend this for good. I'm going to name you Joseph to remind you of that. Hmm. Bad things do not leave us unscathed or unaffected from problems, from the crises, from the trouble. Joseph had problems, he lived through crisis, and he certainly knew trouble, but he also had a holy God with him through it all. So you have a you have a choice. What has your attention? A good plan or a good God? You see, God's good plan for Joseph included slavery and a murder plot and manipulation and harassment and imprisonment. That was God's good plan. 
He didn't send Joseph there. But it was God's good plan because Joseph was there. Do you see the difference? So what has your attention? It should be a good God more than the plan. I skipped some of my notes here because of time. <laughs> Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, we mentioned it a couple of days ago too, your bad circumstances or your bad situations do not give you permission to doubt. That's ungodly behavior. And it's unacceptable for a follower of Jesus. I get that you're going, yes, but we're all human, Ellen, we're all human. Yes, I understand that, but I think that phrase gets a lot of people stuck from moving on. We're just all human. What, that's permission now that you can just wallow in the bad? No. God says you could rise above it. Look at Joseph. He never said it one time, not one time. What you intended for harm, God used for good. <laughs> the cross proves that. The cross proves that. Man intended it for harm. God intended it for good. So God's good people, facing bad and ugly, tuck in tight. Tuck in tight. God, thank you for taking all these jumbled thoughts and somehow bringing them to be. God, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing unto you. And God, I pray that as we leave this place and as we ponder your words from Genesis and as we ponder the stories of these people, that you're good people who face some bad and ugly and nasty circumstances. But God, you bring it to be so good when we trust you with it. Father, I pray that we would be people who would be willing to have our attention fully on you because whatever has our attention has us. So Jesus, would you please, would you please have my full attention? May that be the prayer of all of our hearts. Thank you for what you've done this week, God. May we not leave it here. May we take it with us and apply it to our lives every day. In Jesus' name, amen.